Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode two of a brand new series of Soho Bites, a Soho on Screen podcast. My name is Jing'an Young. I'm a writer and researcher into the depiction of Soho, the beating heart of cosmopolitan bohemian London in British films. In my own research, I've written on the ways London Soho is no longer considered the demi-monde of the metropolis, but its post-war reputation as a milieu for the convergence of hedonists, beatniks, striptease artists, and spivs was rooted in its historical function as a refuge for immigrants and its early modern development as a centre of consumption. This is no more so evident than in its function as the birthplace of nightlife and nightclubs in London. This week, we're staying up a little past our normal bedtimes here at Soho Bites, for the theme of this episode is Soho nightclubs. In a few moments, we'll be hearing from someone who has a very personal connection to the music scene of 1950s and 60s Soho. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Mel Byron about Street of Shadows. Renamed the Shadow Man for the US market, this low-budget film noir stars Hollywood import Cesar Romero as Luigi, the owner of a pin table saloon located on Old Compton Street. Although the film holds an intriguing setup and strong supporting cast, including Kay Kendall and Victor Madden, the film doesn't quite live up to its promise. Or does it? Find out in the second half of the program. Jessica Martin is a singer, actor, and impressionist with an impressively long and diverse CV. She also has a very particular connection to Soho. She's appeared on stages all over the country as well as the West End, starring in shows such as Me and My Girl, Spamalot, and Sunset Boulevard. Last year, she took the role of the notorious Dame Shirley Porter, the former conservative leader of Westminster Council, in a play about her life called Shirley Mander. And as if that wasn't already enough strings to her bow, she recently added another by teaching herself to draw from scratch and becoming a successful graphic novelist. Her latest book, Life Drawing, A Life Under Lights, was published a few weeks ago and is a part memoir of her life. A major player in the story of Jessica's life is her late father, Placido Martin. Known to everyone as Ido, he was a musician, band leader, and local celebrity in Soho in the 50s and 60s. He specialized in Latin music at a time when the mambo and the cha-cha-cha were all the rage, and he led quite an extraordinary life. To find out more about Ido, my producer Dom met up with his daughter Jessica in a busy Soho Square one sunny afternoon. 
My late father, Ido Martin, came over to London from Singapore. I can't be certain of the exact date, but I think it was around 1954. He was of Burmese, Filipino ancestry, and he was a musician. He had been a professional musician from the age of 14 with his father, Alejandro Martin, who was the leader of the dance orchestra at the world-famous Raffles Hotel in Singapore. So that, in a nutshell, is my ancestry, which is I, I am the band leader's daughter and the granddaughter of a band leader too. But my father probably was unique in that at the time he came to Soho, there were a, a lot of um, immigrant population, but I think possibly my father was the only one with such a kind of interesting and unusual cocktail of the, you know, the indigenous regions. It was literally an adventure. He knew there was a very, very respected pianist called David Ung, who had gone to London ahead of my dad and he was doing very well as a musician and I think according to my dad he was sitting having a drink with his buddies with Uncle Dave and Benny and there was another musician they saw who's getting on a boat which was bound for Colombo in Ceylon first and that was going to England and he, and he sort of shouted out hey Ido you want to come with and my dad had been this professional musician from 14 and he was up for adventure and adventure is exactly what he got because no sooner had he come to London and the first place that he would have gone to would have been Archer Street. Archer Street is, it was an amazing, a real street in Soho and every, I don't know whether it was every Monday, but musos would all gather, sit in a cafe and unlike my profession, I'm sorry to be so disparaging about the acting profession, but you know, everyone's very kind of precious about their contacts, you know. Uh, but, at, but musicians were very kind of, hey man, I got the number for this, you know, they need a trombone player, or hey, how heavy is your double bass? Can you make it over to Ronnie Scott's next week? So I have to say, I had to imagine a lot of the story that I put in my book, but I've imagined a scene where he meets David Ung in a cafe in Soho and David Ong has said to my dad, hey Ido, you know, if you want some gigs, there's an agent. So my dad's first agent in London, he was Don Black's brother, Michael Black, who's still with us. And he, on, the, on the couple of occasions that I've bumped into Michael Black at a charity gone, he's, oh yeah, I remember your dad, Ido, you know, coming off the boat and we got him work. And, and the first job that Michael Black got my dad was um, a gig in Reykjavik, Iceland, a jazz festival at the Hotel Borg. <laughs> they were on a fishing trawler to Reykjavik. And my dad had a ball, by all accounts, which I kind of found out when I was about 11, what a ball my dad had had. Should we touch on this bit later? Yeah, let's The main place that I know that my dad had a residency at was, it was called the Cote d'Azur Club. And that was on the site of Ronnie Scott's had been in a, a different location to the one it's at now. And wherever that location was, formerly, before it was Ronnie Scott's place, it was the Cote d'Azur Club. And that was a place where Latin music was, you know, mambos and cha-chas were the thing in the 1950s. And whereas we had, you know, discos arriving from the mid-60s onwards, in those days, it was like my dad's live band with their kind of ruffled shirts on and, uh, you know, looking like 
they just can't stepped off the boat from Cuba, but they were from all these other places. Eager arms wanting my caresses, a quick to discover I couldn't care less. Your technique may be almost sublime, but take it from me, boy, you're wasting your time. That was a place where he achieved a certain amount of yeah, he was kind of like a pop star. People knew who Edo Martin was and they loved his music. So he had a residency there and then he had various residencies. Uh, there was the Pigal Club, which is still around in um, on the corner of Piccadilly. Uh, there was another place, I don't know where that was, called the Blue Angel. There was the Lirondelle, which was later in his career, because I can remember as a teenager going to that which was in Swallow Street, just off Regent Street. The, the thing that I was most proud of was that Daddy had um, a dance band at the Talk of the Town, which is now the Hippodrome. And, um, and he was there in the days when they had people like, you know, Judy Garner was headlining and Tom Jones, Shirley Bassey, and, and they had a full night of entertainment. So Dad would be on first with his Latin trio, and then there'd be a slightly bigger band later before the main act came on, and that was then Burt Rhodes and his orchestra would be with the, the, you know, Frank Sinatra or whoever was in town. So he made his way around Soho. I'm warning you now, boy, you're wasting your time. My mother was aware of Dad's fame, Edo Martin, who's got the band at the Cote d'Azur. She was working not as a waitress in a cocktail bar, but as a waitress in a themed restaurant, they were a feature of London life that has just kind of vanished off the face of history. She worked in a place called the El Cubano, which was a South American themed restaurant in Knightsbridge. And then after hours, she and her friends would go to a club called the Discotheque. But Dad, after his gig had finished, he and the guys would head down to the discotheque and they danced to records. And he and my mum, I would say they probably were dancing to a cha-cha-cha or a mambo. They never actually got married. My mum fell pregnant. Um, and my dad, you know, I sort of touched on the idea that he was a bit of a pop star. He was very popular with the ladies and he, there was always a girlfriend. And um, I don't know that my mum understood that she may not be the exclusive. Whenever I saw the film The King and I, and everybody fell in love with Yul Brynner, but the character was, he was very scary, and he had, despite this wisdom that he had, they had this sort of very childish perspective on life, and that was my dad all over. I always remember one of the wise things he said to me, which was like, I would get frustrated when I was sort of trying to get into the industry as a teenager. He'd just say, Jessica, the irritated oyster makes the pearl and he was full of all of that stuff and so sage but he had the shortest fuse imaginable and I now think he like a lot of creative people he, he was just bipolar and God forbid that you should get in his way when he was in a depression because he'd lost a job or or maybe mum had found out about one of his girlfriends and it's just like you know I can kind of see that we were in the way of his progress on this path to some kind of destination of creative genius that he was never going to reach because as soon as he mastered something, it's like the next thing and the next thing. And we just kind of happened, but he never took responsibility for that. You know what? We didn't just happen. It takes two to make family. But having said all that, for whatever reason, and I like to think that maybe I charmed him, you know, with my cute little singing and all the rest of it, but I arrived on the scene and he he didn't, you know, wander off. He was there and it was, but for my mum, it was a terrible existence because she always felt like she was almost like 
there but by, by the grace of God, you know, we've got a roof over our heads and she had to put up with whatever nonsense there was going on because it was a you know terrible thing. She'd come over from Ireland and I think it was probably five years before her parents even knew that she had children. I was sat down by my mum when I was about 11 years old and uh, I'd already had the birds and the bees conversation when I was 10, so I knew it wasn't that. <laughs> and she very quickly gave me a backstory. So guess what? She and Dad weren't married and the reason was that he was married to somebody and he just hadn't gone through the uh, practicalities of getting a divorce. Oh, and by the way, he had sired a son 17 years previously and that son had been writing to Dad and was going to be coming to London to stay with us next week. <laughs> My brother is called Valgir uh, and he still is alive, thriving in Reykjavik. So when I met him, he was 17 and I was 11 and he was just so cool. I mean, my father was, he was about five foot seven and, and my brother was six foot. And I was like, God, where'd you get that height from? And he kind of looked like Al Pacino because he had the dark hair, but he had this pale complexion and these big eyes, I guess Icelandic looking eyes. And he could speak really good English and he could play piano and he could play drums. My dad, at that time, he wasn't in Soho. We're talking around 1972-ish, and um, he had a residency at the Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington, uh, and he had a, you know, a jazz trio there. And he gave my 17-year-old brother a responsibility of being the drummer, bought him a, you know, dinner suit, dicky bow tie, and everything, which was a big deal. My dad, despite being a kind of, hey, laid-back jazz musician, when it came to work, he was very focused, very disciplined. He practised his music every day. And my, my brother was a 17-year-old teenager with heaps of talent, but no discipline, and he slept in till all hours. And they, they had a couple of rows, and then all of a sudden, it's like my, my brother said something about, oh, I think my, my granddad needs me. He's fallen ill back in Iceland, and bye-bye. I mean, we, you know, he'd been with us for maybe three months. For my brother to kind of pass the litmus paper test and be good enough to be in my dad's band was quite a big thing. And I think that's why my dad was so disappointed. It's like he couldn't actually take the responsibility that, hey, you know what, you didn't do any bringing up. You, you've just got, your, your DNA's just turned up on the doorstep and he happens to be a brilliant musician. But you know, it was like my way or the highway. I'm doing a cabaret based on my book called Life Under Lights. I'm doing it at Cafe Zadel, which is kind of Soho-ish, Piccadilly. Doing that in September. And I sent a copy of the book to my brother and crossed my fingers that he wouldn't be offended, you know, because I've told the whole story. Uh, I haven't sugarcoated anything, but he loves it. If you look at my dad purely as a historical figure and well, he had a string of girlfriends. As far as I know, I've got one brother, but you, you know, there may be other siblings I've yet to meet. And he was not, not a nice man to women in his life because he, he was a misogynist. But he did love me and he was very proud of me and, um, and he was my mentor. Thank you to Jessica for coming on to the show. And we're very pleased to say she'll be making a return later in the series to join me in a conversation about a Soho film. 
There'll be more information about Jessica and her work in the show notes. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Today's featured film, Street of Shadows or Shadow Man, was based on The Creaking Chair by Lawrence Maynell and is centred around a pin table saloon called Luigi's located on Old Compton Street. Although largely filmed at Merton Park Studios, there are a number of notable sequences filmed on location in Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Soho, Covent Garden, and of course, Fitzrovia, also known as North Soho. The first scene is a marvellous visual document of Soho during one summer in the 50s. It is one of two sequences within the film to take place during daylight hours. Following the opening credits, which are superimposed over an aerial shot of a policeman surveying his Soho beat, followed by a black cat who mischievously jumps out from a rubbish bin, we cut to Luigi's assistant Danny, or Limpy, played by Victor Madden, who is briskly making his way down Charing Cross Road. This sequence is accompanied by the film composer Eric Spears' skipping defiant harmonica score, which resembles the third man's theme. To talk about Street of Shadows, I sat down with comedian and old movie geek Mel Byron. We're here with uh, Mel Byron, who is a comedian who has a one-woman show called Old Movies Changed My Life. Save. Save my life. God, I'm sorry. Can we tell again, please? (laughs) We're here with Mel Byron, a comedian who has a one-woman show called Old Movies. Saved my life. Which has already had a very successful run at the Brighton Fringe, I and, believe. And Edinburgh Fringe, yeah. It's very, very cool. Um, we're here to talk about a sort of a B-movie. Um, maybe not very successful B-movie, in your opinion. Not in my opinion, sadly. <laughs> called Street of Shadows. It was released in 1953 and directed by Richard Vernon. So we sent you a copy of this film because even though you've seen it on television, um, but you, you rewatched the film. So I'm really interested to know what your thoughts are about this B film. Um, it's very, it is very much a B noir, I think. Um, for me, it's it's not successful as a film. I, for, for me, the measure of a film is, did I enjoy, it's pure enjoyment. Yes, of course, you can find interesting little details in there, but did I come away thinking, well, that was a good use of an hour and a half of my life? Honestly, in this case, sadly not, for a whole heap of reasons. One thing which is um, quite unique about the film, but maybe not so unique in this period, is the sort of importation of Hollywood or B-Hollywood actors, um, Cesar Romero in this case. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, this was a period in the 50s where lots and lots of of American actors were coming over for, I I guess, all kinds of reasons. I mean, there weren't the parts for them that there had been in in the US in the 30s and 40s. But some really, really big people. I mean, it wasn't just just Cesar Romero who spent most of his life either in B films or as the supporting actor who didn't get the girl. You know, people like Ray Milland came over, Orson Welles. So it's unsurprising that Cesar Romero came over. It's unsurprising that he thought this. This was was 
you know, a good thing. I don't know how much money he was offered. Uh, and he made two films, as far as I know, but I haven't seen the other one. I mean, were they trying to break the American market and therefore to get somebody of Cesar Romero's magnitude is is a bit of a coup for them? Is that how how that, that works? I feel it's a, a combination of that. But I mean, you know, we can only go by on sort of press reports and sort of, you know, for example, Noose, which, you know, 1948, which is Joseph Coleo, and started in, on the stage, wanted to come here because he wanted to be in Arthur Miller's uh, All My Sons at the Lyric Hammersmith, the British kind of premiere. So with Cesar Romero, you know, I've, I've tried to sort of research this, but I think, I assume it's just being able to do these two films and also the clout of being in a... British European production. I mean, how many chances do you get to do that? Yeah, and and as I say, for him, I think his career, he was a prolific actor. He'd been in lots and lots of films, but I can kind of understand, you know, for a man who'd spent um, a good portion of his life being, you know, the second fiddle uh, actor, that he would want to be given the lead in what sounded like they might be quite interesting films and it's Europe and, hey, who doesn't want to spend, you know, six months a year in London filming because that's kind of cool. But I think the, the ultimate results are, are really not very good. Um, certainly if Street of Shadows is anything to go by, uh, maybe should have stayed at home. So one thing about the film, which, of course, is part of my interest, is that a lot of it is shot largely around Soho and is supposed to take place in Soho. And because this podcast is all about Soho, what is your what is your Soho? My Soho? Well, I moved to London in the mid 80s and Soho was I mean, I'd heard of Soho as being the place of uh, the Raymond Review Bar and places that I probably couldn't go to and a bit dark and a bit seedy. And I had seen it in films I, possibly I'd seen this one by this I can't remember but it was it was a place that it was a bit naughty to go there uh, and that's really sort of my first instinct about Soho and obviously um, I've grown up and it's changed so it's not quite the sleazy place that it was I mean I, I tend not to go there very often actually uh, I find it too crowded and and too noisy sometimes I like go during the day but I'd never go at night if I can if I can avoid it so given that this film is set almost entirely at night this is absolutely the time I wouldn't be visiting Soho and that's interesting the idea of it being the film being very dark darkly filmed the cinematography is very much emulating this kind of American noir and you can't see see anything in that murkiness and the seediness comes through and I mean what are your what are your feelings about that? I, I mean to, to be honest I found it deeply irritating actually because it's really interesting I was watching it most recently I was watching it sort of on the tablet screen now I realise in 1953 they didn't film it thinking well, one day people will watch this in their bathroom whilst we're brushing their teeth uh, but I just there were bits where I just couldn't see what was going on I it's even I think whoever lit it, whoever photographed it and the direction, they didn't understand about that contrast, the noir light, the broken light. They just thought, oh, well, it's got to be dark, so we'll just make it black. And, and there are times I genuinely could not see what the heck was going on. I mean, in, a, in your, your traditional noir, Hollywood noir, you look back at the, the sort of Raymond Chandler, you look at some of that murder, my sweet. There's, all that, there's always the Venetian blinds and the broken light or a cigarette lighting where there's just that little bit of little bit of light there's there's always some light you can actually see what's going on but you are conscious that you're in a kind of penumbra you're in a kind of shadow I mean the, the film's called Street of Shadow you can't have shadows without light and yet 
sometimes all you can see is just blackness and it drove me absolutely potty. So in the few scenes where it is actually daylight, it's such a relief. Although not much really very interesting happens in any of those, except the, the one right at the beginning where we're setting the scene. If you would say, what is the epitome of mm. the film, you know, the Soho, the British noir of that time, then it would be Night in the City. Night in the City. The night is tonight, tomorrow night, or any night. When they made Street of Shadows, and uh, I think they were trying to emulate that success very pro probably, but with a much lower budget and without perhaps the skill to, to do it. As I say, it felt like they'd taken all these sort of noir, typical noir things and then just sort of, that. well, if we do that, do that, that and that and that and that and we put them all together, there you go, we've got a film noir. And I just, it just doesn't come off. Yeah. Night in the City is definitely a Hollywood film made with Hollywood money here and it has much higher production values and, and the story is better. The story is better. It's a much richer, deeper story. Um, if we say that the lighting is not noirish, perhaps the themes of the film are what kind of, you know, permeate the imagination about being, being noir, like, you know, the idea that so in the film, Luigi finds this photograph of Barbara Gale, who's played by the lustrous Kay Kendall, and he becomes almost kind of a little bit obsessed with it before his henchman, Limpy, he, well, he passes it on yeah. to Limpy, right? It's, it's a, he looks at it, he obsesses a tiny bit, and then it, then he passes it on. So, mm. so, so again, there's not the mood, there's not... As an audience, we're not drawn into to what seems like a burgeoning relationship with this woman that he's never met. So I think they're trying to do all the things that it's like somebody read, read a textbook about American noir and thought they'd have a go, but didn't quite do it. You know, the six form project to, <laughs> to create a noir film and didn't quite pull it off. So, yeah, we've got the, the noir themes and we've got, you know, the setting, you've got the nightclub. But again, the night the nightclub owner traditionally in noir is always the bad guy. So so right at the beginning, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, where's this going? Cesar Romero, he's going to be a he's going to be a wrong one, isn't he? And then about 20 minutes into the film, oh, hang on, he's actually quite nice. Look, he's, he's making a roast dinner for Kay Kendall. What a lovely man! Hang on, a minute. no. <laughs> I think the other really strange. Um thing about the film is his profession which we should add is a as the owner of a of a bar and a and a thing called a pin table mm. saloon or saloon yeah. so it's a nightclub <laughs> but it's a pin but it's with pin with fairground things i don't know if this was a thing in the 50s uh, it's certainly the only occasion i've ever seen this um with, with, with funny fairground attractions and air guns and whatever so it's it's not a traditional nightclub uh, but yeah, it has some of those traditional nightclubs, including the screen that he opens so he can mm. look out into the nightclub and have a look at what's going on. And of course, that is obviously, again, going back to the, the noir. It's like they, they, they had all these boxes to tick. Oh, he's got a nightclub. He's got to have the screen that he can open so he can see into the nightclub. Oh, we'll have that. Well, that looks good. And it's it's kind of like, you know, they, they just ticked all the boxes and somehow made a film out of those. And another um, film, so film scholar John Hill suggests the key to understanding Britain in the 1950s is affluence of a nation moving inexorably forward from post-war austerity and rationing to Macmillan's soap flake Arcadia. And if we look at the film as this sort of post-war, you know, explosion of kind of consumerist mm -hmm. attitudes, you know, towards Americans, towards this, this 
Again, this, like you said, this arcade of just, but still quite austere. But still, still we're quite still quite austere. 1953. I'm right. I think rationing had only just, just fully come the, yeah, to, an to an end. end. Um, you know, by by then, but I guess we think of the 60s as being the time when mm. there was real sort of uh, a boom and and people's lives, you know, lifestyles really started to improve. But at the 50s, I think we hadn't kind of got there yet, and so I, there is still very much this contrast in that film and and you know the Kay Kendall and her friends and Bill Travers very interesting to see Bill Travers playing a really quite unpleasant posh boy and they all go to this pin table saloon but they are very much the posh people in an environment that isn't for posh people because their attitude, their behaviour, the way they drink too much, the way one of them um, touches Limpy and says, oh, he's got a club for all that's lucky. And it's just it's just patronising. and it's re- So I think that, 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 you know, the division is still very stark. Who said you could call me Limpy? Isn't that what she called you? The girl? Yes. Well, Limpy, old son, this machine's a fraud. No scenes, Nigel, please. It's a bent penny. Some people are mean. They hang on to them for so long they get bent. They are, Your Lordship, with the proprietor's compliments. This little fellow knows a thing or two. Nigel? Give me some pennies, Nigel. Ask Hopalong. He's the man you want. Let go of you, crazy cripple! No quarrels, no fights. Young lady, you apologize to Limpy here. I'm sorry. Luigi! And, of course, the lovely Surrey cottage that Kay Kendall lives in, which is one of her two homes. And Limpy and the girl, Angel, they live in these sort of rented, really quite scruffy, down-a-hill rented apartments. So I don't think we kind of reached there yet, I think. I think... To me, there's still that stark division, mm. and of course, it is at the end of the day, it's the kind of it's the poor people who come off badly at the mm. end of this, Limpy and Angel. That's a very good segue into the music mm-hmm. um, composed by Eric Spear, who had a, another kind of really prolific career in B films and sort of B uh, themes, but his sort of marionette theme with the harmonica. You know, on Twitter you said I've got my harmonica ready, so I'm wondering where it is now. (laughs) That harmonica just, again, like the lighting, the harmonica really annoyed me. (laughs) To me, again, one of the things that I think they really missed here, you know, when they were looking through their tick list, they forgot to tick jazz score uh, because the harmonica doesn't work for me at all. A monthly film bulletin when it reviewed Street of Shadows, it called it, um, well conventional thriller enlivened by Tommy Riley's harmonica solo so Tommy Riley is the harmonica player of Eric Spears' song particularly The Limping Man which seems destined to share the fate of the Harry Lime theme Oh I think that <laughs> Oh I think <laughs> uh, I think I'd beg to differ there I think that's that's giving it a, a level of quality and a, co- and a and a contribution to the film that that it simply doesn't have The Harry Lime theme you watch The Third Man for me The Harry Lime theme so the zither music is almost like a character in itself. It stands alone and it, it it helps us to progress the story. It really has a massive part to play. 
this just doesn't it's just annoying harmonica music that really is just wrong for this film um, and it's only at the end when they're in the club and they kind of set up limpy uh, and, the, and the jukebox starts playing we get this kind of jazz theme and ah finally the jazz score that this film should always have had and but but you know then the film ends so oh, very frustrating but the harmonica theme didn't work for me at all so we've discussed sort of what you don't like about the film. So what do you really love about the film? I, to, love might be exaggerated. I do think Victor Madden is is excellent in the film. And he, he is excellent. And I think he makes really, he makes a lot of what is a very underwritten character and could actually have been given more to do because it signaled to us very early on that that there's something is going to happen to his character that is actually going to be key to the film. So I think for for me that's that's one of the the key things in the film. That's one of the the really good things in the film. Otherwise, it's hard to it's hard to pick on things. I think oh yeah, that's great, that's great. I mean yes, looking at London in the 1950s, I always find those the old films that when when you see them on location. Uh, really interesting because I live in London and it's interesting to see what it looked like. Uh, so that's always interesting, uh, assuming you can see it because the lights are on. Uh, but other films do it better. How about the um, the montage sequence with the champagne? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and and that's a good, uh, you know, that sequence where they're they're going round the clubs. I guess it's a kind of posh pub crawl. <laughs> is is quite interesting because I guess back in the you could go to these these night a nightclub was a very different thing, wasn't it? Back in the fifties, it wasn't dancing and you know it was sitting at tables, maybe dancing, but maybe having a quiet drink. Um, so you get to see this sort of diff- lots of different places that they go to, and then they end up at this pin table saloon that none of us had ever. Never knew existed until this film was made, I think. So, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. So, yeah, it does give you a, a sort of interesting look at, at London in the 50s. As I say, I think it's done better in other films. But, yeah, the, so those that and Victor Madden, I think, for me, are the, the sort of standouts in this film. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's mm. funny because, you know, that Montour sequence, there's mm. a sort of thing which um, this famous scholar calls Landmark London. And Landmark London is the idea of montage through the big monuments, right? Like Big Ben uh, and yeah. Tower Bridge. And, and then all these Soho films have these incredible montages of just, you know, culture of consumption, you know, just drinking or going to the theatre, going to a strip club. And, and I think that's what's absent from this film is the subculture. Mm-hmm. You know, the pin table saloon is a very sanitised version of yeah. subculture. It's not, it's, not, it's not quite seedy, but it is seedy. And that's why I think you need Angela, because she's just, she's the seedy she's bit the of the film. Element. Yeah. So. so if we look at sort of the, the, fa- the kind of great, I think it's the best scene in the film is when um, Angel kind of is is being defended by Luigi, which I think kind of is the catalyst for the sort of rest of the films showing his obsession with Barbara and trying to mm. be social and blah blah social mobility. But um that's interesting because that pub is the Marquis of Granby, which is located in Fitzrovia, which is also look it is also known as North Soho. <laughs> oh no ho. <laughs> no I didn't know that. But I, I wonder if that makes a difference to the scene because she's being basically assaulted by an officer even though we're kind of it's sort of suggested she's a prostitute isn't it 
Yeah, so, yeah. Because I think somebody later on says that he, he, she was Luigi steady, but she was. Oh, Limpy says it, doesn't he? Um, she was not steady, but with lots and lots of other, other guys. You see, I didn't, I didn't know that the, the Marquis of Granby. I had to look that up afterwards. Was not in Soho as such, and and everything would point to it being within very short walking distance from Luigi's place. Because Limpy says, "Come, come, you need to come now." Mm. And, and so they walk very quickly to this place and, you know, he beats up the sailor. So I kind of didn't kind of pick up anything other than, OK, he's just walked mm-hmm. to a different part of Soho. The fact that the guy was a sailor, for sure mm-hmm. there's something in that. But it, it just, it's again, just, it just it wasn't none yeah. of this is interesting. It's, it is. I feel like a lot of it is a box ticking exercise. You know, or we've got this foreigner, this outsider, because, of course, Cesar Romero's character is supposed to be Italian, you know literally punching somebody from the British armed forces. But actually, at the time, it just goes over your head because it's just, you know, two blokes having a fight over a girl or Soho in the 50s, yeah, whatever. Hmm. Whatever indeed. So, Street of Shadows. Not a film which Mel Byron would wholly recommend, but it's still worth seeing just for the incredible on-location sequences. We found several online suppliers selling the DVD, which include Amazon.com. Thanks very much to Mel for coming in to talk to us about her experience. Mel is known for her one-woman show, Old Movie Saved My Life, which ran to rave reviews at the Brighton Fringe this year. She'll be performing it alongside her one-woman show, Karoshi, which is the Japanese word for death by overwork, later this month at the Faversham Fringe Festival. You can find dates for all of her upcoming shows, as well as her social media details on her website, melbyron.com, and listen to her highly informative classic film reviews on the official Talking Pictures TV podcast. And thanks again to Jessica Martin. The gig that Jessica mentions in her interview, the cabaret based on her latest book, will be performed live at Zadell at the Brasserie Zadell on Sherwood Street on September 1st. Unfortunately, it's entirely sold out, but it is definitely worth contacting the venue in case of returns. There will be a link to more information on our website. Jessica's most recent graphic novel, Life Drawing, A Life Under Lights, is available at all online retailers. You can see more of her work on her social media as well as her official website, jessicamartinofficial.com. Do you have a favourite Soho film? The chances are it's already on our list, but we're always keen to hear of any more. If there are any that you'd like to hear featured on podcast, you can email us at sohobitespodcast at gmail.com or tweet your suggestions to Bites Soho. Please note there are two S's in the middle of that. The next episode of Soho Bites is all about crime, both organised and disorganised. Aidan McManus from Flip Tours London will join us to talk about the gangs that ran Soho from the interwar years onwards. We'll also be taking a stroll down the mighty River Thames with Adam Roche, where we'll be talking about two crime films from one very famous auteur. Until next time, from me, Jing Young, and my producer, Dom Delaghi, bye for now. <laughs>